Acts chapter 2, you might think in an unusual place to start for our message this morning since we're considering Christ in the Psalms. You know, we looked at Christ in the Old Testament and the Law of Moses and the history books and the prophets. And then lastly, we're looking at that last category that Jesus pointed out in Luke chapter 24, which is the Psalms. And he's, he was probably using this as a little bit broader description. Is probably having to do with uh, the books that they often referred to as the writings, which would be the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It'd be your wisdom literature, the Song of Solomon, these different uh, books. But we're going to keep it a little bit more limited. We're going to look just at the Psalms this morning, as it is the largest book uh, within the Bible, 150 chapters. Uh, so we're going to keep it limited there. But we're going to start our search in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, verses 25 through 36, where it says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, as we look at this passage here, this is obviously the sermon at Pentecost. Jesus had told the disciples after he rose again from the dead and then he spent 40 days appearing to them at different times and places and teaching them about himself. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit would come upon them and then they would be his witnesses around the world. And at the Feast of Pentecost, which was a Jewish holiday, the Holy Spirit came in power with quite a visible show. It obviously got a lot of people's attention, and Peter got a chance to stand up and exclaim what the reason for that was. This was the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. And then he used that as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to tell those religious leaders and the people of Jerusalem that were around there that, look, this one that you begged, you took him to Pilate, and you had him put on the cross. This was indeed the Son of God that rose again from the dead. Now, in order to prove that to him. He quotes a psalm, and that's what brings us to the psalms here today. In fact, as you look through the book of Acts and throughout the whole New Testament, you find repeatedly the Old Testament quoted from establishing that Jesus is the Christ. No book in the Old Testament more than the psalms was quoted from in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, when they're pointing to Christ, they often go to the psalms. As they do it in this passage, he points back to Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10, where David says, you will not suffer your Holy One to seek corruption. And in his message, Peter says, we know that David's body is decayed. It has seen corruption within that grave. So he could not be referring to himself. Well, if he wasn't referring to himself, then who was he referring to? It was to the Messiah that would come. It was to the Christ. 
throughout the Psalms. We have lots of little verses here and there that point to Christ. We also have larger sections of Scripture. Uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, both point pretty heavily to Christ. But what we're looking at here today is how do the Psalms magnify Christ? Well, as we look at, first of all, I want to point out the methods. And, and a little bit of this is a little bit of review because it is very similar to the methods that we pointed out last week in dealing with the prophets. One of the methods that we see is through type. Remember how we talked about how different events and different people within the happenings of the Old Testament foreshadowed. They were a, a pattern and a picture of what Jesus would do when he came. Well, in the Psalms, let's start with David. Last time we talked about how David is a type of Christ. We talked specifically in, in the history books when we dealt with those about David going up against Goliath and he was representing the people and he went and risked his life to deliver the people on the hillside. How Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, the people on the hillside. David is definitely linked very closely to Jesus Christ. We see David is given the, the Davidic covenant, the promise that God gives David that one would sit on David's throne that would rule forever on the throne of David his father. In Psalm 69 verse 9, it says, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Some of the events that we see in David's life, it's describing something that was going on in his life at the moment, but it also points forward to Christ. We see this verse quoted when Jesus goes into the temple and he finds people exchanging money in there for a profit and people selling animals for sacrifices. And Jesus goes in there and he says, my house was supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And he flips over the money tables and it is quoted about him. The zeal of your house has consumed me. And so that would not only speak to David's life, but it would also speak forward to the life of Christ. David and Christ are so closely linked together that when you look in the book of Ezekiel, he prophesies four times about Christ. In those four prophecies about Christ, he calls him David. It's clear that he's not talking about David as we look at the prophecies, but he calls him David. Now notice in, in Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24, he says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now this is prophesied long after David was a king. In fact, long after David was dead. And he says, this is what's going to happen. My shepherd's going to come. My servant's going to come. And he even calls him David when it is clearly not talking about David. He's calling him David to connect the promise. Well, three chapters later in chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel, it does the same thing. We see Jesus through the Psalms. We see David as a type of Christ prefiguring what Christ would do when he came. Other ways that you find types in the Psalms is through David crying out for salvation. He's often in the Psalms crying out for and trusting in the salvation that God would send. In fact, that brings us to our next point is that through trust. David would show Christ in, in his trust for Christ, in his waiting for that redemption, in his waiting to be delivered. And then finally also through prophecy. And that's the passage that we see here in Acts chapter 2 when it looks back to the Psalms. Psalm 16.10, you not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. To, to have his body after at death delivered from corruption does not describe David's experience. This is something within the Psalms that did not happen to David. What it was was a prophecy pointing forward to Christ. We're going to see that in other places because there's a passage where David talks about them piercing his hands and his feet. 
That was something that did not happen to David that was strictly prophecy concerning Christ for in the future. And so we see that the last one is through prophecy. In Psalm 118 and verse 22, he prophesies that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's a, I love that, that story. It's about the building of the temple and, and the, the, the cornerstone. You know, at the temple, they were not allowed to actually chisel the rocks at the temple site. They had to do all the noisy work and the messy work off-site, bringing in and assemble it at the temple site. Well, they had the chief cornerstone. At one point, when they were dealing with the stones, they didn't know what it was. And then it comes time to assemble the stones, and they start looking for the cornerstone. They can't find it. And they're looking all over for it, and finally somebody recalls, hey, there was that stone that we had no clue what it was for, and we rejected it. So what they do, they retrieve it and place it, and it is the cornerstone of the entire building. That is alluded to in Psalm 118.22. The stone that was rejected by the builders has become the chief cornerstone. And all that prophesied Christ. That's exactly what happened with Christ. In fact, when we get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 11, Peter and John were arrested. They were beaten. They were on trial. And here's a response. Peter tells them, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And so Peter recognizes that psalm was a prophecy about Christ in the past that pointed to their time when Christ would come. And he says, you guys, as the leader of Israel, as the religious leaders, you're the builders. And you rejected this stone, which is Christ. And he is the chief cornerstone. Now the focus, as we look through Psalms, there's a, there's a lot of different focuses. But you know, two things that really stand out prominently through the Psalms are these two things. One, we find the glory of Christ revealed to us within the Psalms. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It foretold and looked forward to this kingdom that would never end. When the Messiah, the son of David, is going to sit on the throne of his father and rule and reign not only Jerusalem and Israel, But the Bible talks about him ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And they're looking forward to that day. That's why the apostles continually asked Jesus, now are you going to set up your kingdom? And he would tell them, look, you don't get it. This trip, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to go and I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and they're going to do what they will and they're going to hang me on the cross and I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And then the disciples would say, okay, so which one of us gets to sit on your right hand? You know, I mean, it was really that crazy that all the direct statements that he gave them about going to the cross went right over their head because they had this concept of the kingdom so locked in even after he rose again from the dead. And when he's before them and about to ascend up into heaven, they asked him one last time, now are you going to set up the kingdom? And he says, look, you got plenty to do. Go be my witnesses. It's not for you to know when the kingdom's coming. It's coming, but you don't get to know when they were so locked into this idea of the kingdom. And you know what? Through the Psalms and other places, it points to the, to the ruling and reigning Christ, the glory that the Messiah would hold as He sits on His Father's throne. But the Bible also clearly, clearly portrays this suffering servant that would come and die for the sins of the people. And that's the other focus. The Psalms focused on the glory of Christ. And as we see David as the king ruling and reigning and looking forward to his rule continuing through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, you see a lot of that in the Psalms. But you also see this suffering. I think of Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9. It says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's quoted referring to Judas. 
turning his back on Christ and betraying him and handing him over. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And you know that insinuates something, doesn't it? That he dies, but then that he's resurrected. In Psalm 31, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You know, many of the last statements of Christ on the cross are actually quotes from the Psalms. In fact, in Psalm 22, verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And that's exactly what was said by the people that were standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus was being hung on it. In Psalm 22, verses 16 and 18, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evil evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And as we said with David, they never did these things to David. They never, they never pierced David's hands and his feet, but it tells clearly about what they would do to Jesus. They would pierce my hands and my feet. They parted my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast lots. When the soldiers mocked Jesus and they put that robe on him and they put the crown of thorns on him and drove that into his head and they mocked him, which these psalms also talk about them doing, making mouths at him, and they ridiculed him and they rejected him. During part of that time, the soldiers decided to get a little souvenir of the event. And so they took some of Jesus' clothes and they tore it into little pieces so that everybody would get a piece, everybody would get a souvenir from this time when they crucified the King of the Jews. But one of his garments was too nice. They didn't want to tear it up. And so they rolled dice for it or drew straws. They cast lots was their way of doing it. But basically, they just set it to chance. One person's going to get the whole thing. Everybody else can have a small piece of the rest of his clothes. And that was told hundreds of years before it happened, very specifically within the Psalms. You know, as we work our way through the book of Acts, we see that he continually uses the Psalms. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are ministering, and Paul has the opportunity to speak to the congregation of the Jewish people. First thing he does, he kind of goes through Israel's history about being delivered by Moses from Egypt, being brought into the Promised Land, all these things that we already talked about, how they already foreshadow Christ. And that's the point that he's going to make here. These things all point to Christ. The time of the judges, when they were being delivered repeatedly under the time of the judges, being saved there. And he gives basically a history of Israel. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. The salvation that they saw in Israel being delivered from Egypt. The salvation that they saw through the judges. The salvation that they saw in their history books. All these things. It's that salvation that's been spoken of to them. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead, and for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers... There's three different things that he points out to them about this Christ. One is that they didn't recognize him, and they should have. Why should they have recognized him? He says, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. 
Remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with those disciples and they didn't recognize him at first? And, they, and he asked them why they're down and they said, we thought this guy was the Christ, but apparently he's not, is what they're insinuating, because he's, he's put to death. And he says, how slow of heart you are to believe. And then it says that he went back to Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures and showed how the Messiah must suffer. He must die and be raised again on the third day. He showed that to them through Moses, the prophets, all the scriptures. Later on in the same passage, he mentions the Psalms. But that's exactly what the apostle is telling these people now. He says, look, you guys should have recognized him. Every Sabbath we have these readings of the prophets. And they all speak of Christ. We, we have these things every week we're going over this stuff that all points to Christ and we should have recognized Him, but you didn't. But then notice the next thing that happens is very interesting. It says that they fulfilled them. Now specifically what he's talking about here is the sufferings. He says you didn't recognize that the Christ was supposed to come and suffer and die for you. And so you know what? You're the ones that actually ended up carrying it out. You're the ones that had Him put on the cross that led to His death. Well, as we go on within that passage, it says this, He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the, in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that, that's repeated many times throughout the New Testament Scriptures. This, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And it is almost always linked to His resurrection. Not to His coming into the world and His birth, but to His resurrection. Some people say that it is because that's when he starts a new experience as God's son, as being the resurrected son of God. I, I tend to think that maybe it goes a little bit different direction. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is declared to be the son of God with power through the resurrection of the dead. And so I think it's through the resurrection that declares to us that he is the son of God. I think that's why it's linked to his resurrection. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. That's from Isaiah 55. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. That's Psalm 1610 that we've already alluded to. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He's saying, look, Christ fulfilled the prophecies given to us in the Psalms. If you're not careful, you're going to fulfill another prophecy. He's telling them you already were used to fulfill one prophecy that brought about Christ's suffering. You're the guys that hung Him on the cross. Now you're in danger of fulfilling another prophecy because Isaiah and other prophets spoke that God would come to these people and they wouldn't believe Him. That their hearts would be closed. And He's saying you're going to fulfill that prophecy too just even by your unbelief if you're not careful. Well, we see the pattern put simply in Acts chapter 17 as it deals with the Apostle Paul. It says, Paul went in and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. You see, that was their pattern. The Jewish people were looking for Christ to come and rule and reign. They were looking for Him to come in His glory. The part that threw Him off was the suffering. And it's the part that still throws them off today. 
That's why the Apostle Paul and these other apostles argued from the Psalms and other places that the Christ must suffer. He had to die in order to fulfill the prophecies concerning the Christ. Well, lastly, we're just going to go through a couple of examples. Let's just walk ourselves through a couple of Psalms that have a pretty good focus on the Messiah that are Messianic Psalms. Let's start off in in, uh, Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, he says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. This is foretelling. It's looking forward to the time when the nations will will rage against God, will come against His anointed one, against this, against Christ. The apostles recognized it as that. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are arrested, and they're, they're arrested once and, and threatened, they're arrested again and beaten, and after they get beaten and set free and warned not to teach any more about Christ, they go back to the other disciples and they share with them what happened to them. In Acts chapter 4, verse 24 and following, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to, together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see what's happening with the disciples? They're being persecuted, and they're recognizing that it's connected to Jesus' persecution. And they remember this psalm. Why do the nations rage? Why do the Gentiles rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth gather up against this anointed one. And then they just explain it back to God. They say, God, not many days ago in your city, we have Pilate, we have the Gentiles, we have the Jewish leaders, all of these leaders mounting together against your anointed one, against this Christ. And then they recognize that even their persecution was a continuation of the the leaders of the world coming against this anointed one against this Christ. So they recognized that that psalm was looking forward to their time and fulfilled in Christ. Also, as we get a little bit farther in the chapter 2, verse 9 talks about him breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We also see it in in Revelation chapter 2 because it pointed out about him ruling with a rod of iron. It says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And so Jesus talking about himself and then his followers also helping and ruling with a rod of iron in the nations. Revelation chapter 12, 5, it gives an image of this woman being Israel and delivering a son, which is the Messiah. And it says she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, it also points to Christ coming as the one who would rule with this rod of iron. As we look through Psalm chapter 2, these nations gathering against him, but him ruling over them uh, is foretold. Also, we look at Psalm 8. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, even that could be 
alluded to Christ because when we look at places like Colossians or the first chapter of the Gospel of John, they point out that Christ was involved in the creation. In fact, there isn't anything that was made that wasn't made through Him. But notice it says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, in, in one sense, this kind of just refers to creation. That God created everything in the world, and then the last thing he created was man. And then what did he tell man? You'll exercise dominion over the earth. You're going to manage it. And so the psalmist is looking and saying, what is man? Who is man, Lord, that you were mindful of him? Why would you put us in charge of all of creation? But you know what? It goes deeper than that because Jesus Christ, as the head of all mankind, in Hebrews it quotes this same psalm. Then it goes on to say, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's saying, look, this, this psalm that was written, it's not just referring to man and his position over creation. It's referring to the Son of Man. And he's put everything under subjection to the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is Jesus Christ. He said, now we don't see yet everything under subjection to him. In other words, it's not all under subjection to him yet, but it's coming. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's His incarnation when He came to the earth to take upon the nature of a man, to become a man. For a little while He was made lower than the angels. But it's not going to stay that way. Everything will be put under subjection under Jesus Christ. So He's saying, look, this this psalm which speaks generally about mankind also speaks specifically about the Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, and what He would accomplish for us. And look in the end. In the end, what does He accomplish for us? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You know, all through the Psalms, and it's the largest and most quoted book in the Bible, all through the Psalms, we see deliverance. We see cries for deliverance. We see David trusting in the deliverance of God. We see a Savior. We see sometimes David trusts in that Savior. Sometimes he even prefigures that Savior. But we see this Savior that is declared throughout the Psalms. We see that the Savior would one day reign in glory, and we're looking forward to that. But we also see that this Savior would also suffer to taste death for everyone. When He went to that cross, He was suffering for you. He was suffering for me. He was experiencing the sentence of death upon Himself for us that had the sentence of death upon us. Just as in the prophets, just as in the books of Moses and the history books, the Psalms are pointing us straight to Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. You know, Paul would speak to the people, Peter would speak to the people, and they both would say the same things. Look, you guys read this every week, and you missed it. How could you miss it? How much worse us who gather together who not only have the Old Testament, but have the New Testament that also shows us how to interpret the Old Testament and points out the fact that it all points to Christ. How much worse for us to sit in here week in and week out and and miss it. You know, Jesus would one time tell you, search the Scriptures 
and in them you think you have eternal life, but you won't come to me that you might have life. They were about him. The whole purpose in them in the scriptures was to point them to Christ and to show them their need for Christ and the the accomplishments of Christ and, and that they could trust in Christ and they didn't make it. How much more sad for us having all the Bible completed and all of it pointing to Christ. If we sit in here and get excited about our Bible study, but it never leads us to him, to where we really put our faith and trust in him.